They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. Good evening, and welcome to another edition of On Parenting. Well, good evening. This is Jack Petrash, and welcome to On Parenting here at WPFW 89.3 Pacifica Radio. And uh, welcome to our November show. You know, when I think about parenting, I am struck by the fact that I became a parent and a teacher the same year. And when I look at how I was prepared to be a teacher and the classes that I took and the books that I had to read and the papers that I had to write, the conversations that I had with my professors, the conversations with my fellow students. And I'm just struck by the preparation. And when I compare that to the preparation that I had to be a dad, I am just struck by the difference. Um, some people say that it's harder to get a driver's license than to become a parent. And I believe that that's true and ironic at the same time. Um, because we're just kind of left to our own devices when we enter into parenting. And that means we learn by doing. Uh, but it also means that we learn by our mistakes. And that's why it's so essential that we have a community to support us in our parenting and to offer us guidance. And in shows earlier in this year, we've had individuals on who offer that kind of professional guidance. We've had Claudia Booker on from Birthing Hands to speak about pregnancy and um, nursing mothers and all the challenges that we face as parents when we have a newborn. We've had Marsha Jackson on from Birth Care in Alexandria to speak about um, the birth of a child and the options that we have as parents. But the guidance of those professionals is just very important. And there's another professional that's important to our child raising whose work really begins when our child is born, and that's our pediatrician. And it's the beginning of an ongoing opportunity for receiving guidance which would help us to foster our children, to nurture them, to care for them, and to really protect them in a way that furthers their well-being. And tonight, our guest on our show is Joanna Rossi. Dr. Rossi is a pediatrician in the Washington, D.C. area, has been for years. She's the mother of two children, and she's just a source of guidance for so many parents in our city. And uh, I want to welcome you, Joanna. Thank you, Jack. Well, it's great to have you on the show. And, uh, Joanna, I wanted to ask you, um, with your work as, as a pediatrician, I know that your work begins when a child is born. And it's the beginning of a connection with a family and with a child that's going to be ongoing for years. Can you speak a little bit about that relationship that, that starts then? Sure. I want to say something, Jack, and that is that actually, usually, my relationship begins before the child is born, uh -huh. because parents come in to interview me. Oh, of course. That's right. And I consider that an essential moment. They are choosing who they want to take care of their child. I'm giving my time, usually, and it gives me the opportunity to introduce myself, to tell them about myself and how I got into medicine and pediatrics but also allows me to begin to ask them questions, such as, um, who will be with you when the baby's born? Who will be around you in the weeks after the birth? Are there health 
issues that have been in your family that may come up in early childhood. Um, and so we begin a dialogue. It's just the very beginning, and of course they're able to ask me questions as well. I talk a lot about how the mother has the care of the baby, but other people really have to take care of the mother, and I want to make sure that the setup, that the parents understand that. Because <clears throat> if a mother really thinks that she's going to be able to make it alone, and sometimes people are uninformed and don't really understand how much they need help at the time of birth, the community of the child, that's the that's moment when I speak about that. Now, when you speak to mothers, and you counsel them, you really do, you offer them guidance and counseling, and you speak to them about their needs, what they're going to need when their child is born, what do you think are the important things? What are the things that you tell uh, moms who are soon to give birth? Um, of course, the first thing I tell them is that they're, they're on an extraordinary journey, a miraculous journey, that is going to be deeply satisfying that they will be stretched, that they will be initiated into a world that they don't really know exists until they have their first baby, uh, that the baby will completely make them love the child so deeply, so unconditionally, and do anything needed, but that while they're doing anything needed, they need to also take care of themselves. And the taking care of themselves has to do with surrounding themselves with the trusted people, with eating well and nutritiously and sensibly because their body is going to go through a huge effort at the time of birth in recovering from the birth. And if they nurse their baby in a huge effort, kind of like it's like a marathon. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, it's a marathon without moving. And for a marathon, you really need very good support. You need water bottles, you need the right sustenance, and so we speak about those things. Now, with a new mom, I know there's just a critical period where um, a parent needs someone there to shepherd them, to care for them, they need space for themselves, and they need a certain amount of time just really to attend to the child. What What is the length of time? I know uh, our daughter-in-law, when our granddaughter was born. She was expected to go back to work in four weeks. What do you think is uh, the amount of time that a, a mother needs to really acclimate to this new role? I think it varies. Um, I certainly think that the time is longer with the first child than with subsequent children, usually. And I think that the time with the first child is at least two months and sometimes three. In old traditions, mothers were helped completely for 40 days. They took care of the baby, but someone took care of them for 40 days. Realistically, that doesn't usually happen today. Mm -hmm. But explaining to people that that was the expectation, you know, that that was the period of transition for the mother and that they really need to reach out into their community grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, to try and have support for a fairly extended period of time, I really emphasize that a lot. And it builds a community around the baby because people love to bond with babies yes, when babies do. are little. They're so special. 
you know, and it's the natural time. And so there's a balance between the nuclear family and the extended family, but those few little moments that extended family get are awfully special for them. Now, when you speak to, <clears throat> to moms, and I would imagine that you're not just speaking to moms at, at this juncture, you're speaking with dads as well. What's the role of the father in supporting the mother at this time? It's huge and important. And uh, first of all, there's a fun aspect, and that is that the baby naturally, from the get-go, is playful with the father. And so there's a lot about the personality that one learns if a child is fortunate enough to have a mother, the nurturer, and the father who in his role with the baby is fairly playful. There's a lot that the baby then can display of what he knows and what he or she makes happen. Um, so that's one part. That's kind of the fun part. And the other part is the father really looks out after the mother and makes sure that when she nurses, she drinks, she eats, takes the baby, he can take the baby while the mother, you know, naps or takes a shower or, you know, simply has a stretch of time on her own because for the mother at the beginning, all of this time with the baby in arms, yeah. it's a whole new, especially with the first child, it's a whole new learning for the mother of, of not her body not belonging to herself, but really being an envelope around herself and the baby. And mothers need some breaking in most of the time, and the fathers are there. Wonderful thoughts. Joanna, um, as I, I recall um, my own children's birth and, and the early days of their life, uh, I know it was a time of a real um, exhilaration and joy. Um, but I also remember that it wasn't always smooth sailing. And what, um, what are the blips on the screen that parents encounter in these early days? That's a big question. Um, I think often the first blip is their extraordinary fatigue because the excitement and the marvel and the miracle carry you for two days, uh -huh. three days, or four days. And suddenly, many, many people have slept the least they've ever slept in their life between the labor the birth and the first days. And oftentimes they even are, the sleep deprivation leads to it, it being hard for them to rest. And suddenly they're like, oh my God, we can't really do this. You know, we can't really do this. And every, every blip is an opportunity, uh -huh. you know, because every time you overcome these blips, you're just, oh, we can do this. So sometimes you have to call on a friend, and the friend has to babysit for two hours, and the parents have to go to sleep, yeah. <laughs> period. Um, sometimes the father steps in for the mother, etc. So that's the first blip. The other blip definitely, um, I think, is the, the mother's nourishment, because oftentimes they're just, the mother has not needed to crank out recovering from birth and making milk, and also being 
you know, Suck, suckled. And so she will go through really big ups and downs of it, feeling too tired to eat, too tired to drink, then eating, then getting depleted very quickly. And depleted meaning having chills, thinking she's going to faint, thinking that she's not going to be able to walk. So it's a scary feelings. And solid, good nutrition that doesn't have any refined foods, doesn't have um, sugars or too much refined flour really helps not to have ups and downs. But that's another blip. And then, of course, the crying child. Yes. And uh, learning that you can't fix everything, but that you can keep things safe. And learning to become comfortable with that the baby doesn't need to be perfect, doesn't need to feel even perfect, but he does need to be in trusted arms. And you know these are these are things that the parents learn and yes. learn that vigorous crying usually means a vigorous, healthy child. Uh huh. And it's so it's good to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to say to our listeners, we are speaking with Joanna Razi, Dr. Razi, pediatrician here in Washington D.C., and we invite your calls on WPFW's phone line at two zero two five eight eight zero eight nine three. Now, Joanna, I I also know that. Um, in looking at um, the things that come to parents, that nursing moms uh, often have the challenge, uh, the challenges, the blips that come with nursing, and one of those is mastitis. And I was wondering if you, because that too is a, a blip and an opportunity. Would you speak a little bit about that in, in your experience? Sure. You know, most women will end up having mastitis and having it once in the first months of the child's life. It's definitely usually scary because it's a true infection and inflammation where the baby's mouth has bacteria, the baby's mouth suckles, some bacteria gets into the mother's breast, it gets inflamed, it gets blocked. And the mother usually will feel first just extraordinarily tired and then achy all over as if she was getting a flu she will have no sense often that it comes from the breast. And then all of a sudden, when the baby's nursing, there's a lot of pain. Now, the interesting thing is that, you know, traditionally, this is treated with antibiotics. And the tricky part about treating mastitis with antibiotics is that then the child sometimes will develop thrush, an infection in the mouth, which he'll give to the mother and it will cause a lot of itching in the nipple. And so it's wonderful if one can navigate this without the use of antibiotics, and sometimes one can do that safely if one, the mother rests, two, the mother drinks, and three, there's a wonderful natural trick Uh with uh, something called a cabbage poultice, where you use cabbage leaves that have been boiled and are soft, and you literally put the cabbage leaves inside the bra that the mother is wearing on the on the on the breast that hurts. And between frequent nursing and these poultices with uh, with cabbage, and time, 24, 48 hours, and letting the fever run and keeping fluids in, the mother will f- get better, and really feel that she's accomplished something remarkable, which she has. You know, she's come through an infection safely. The baby has helped her. Rest has helped her. 
her help has helped her. <laughs> and this, these, oftentimes, these cabbage poultices. Now, I know that you, this is a, a, a real learning experience for a new parent. And it's the kind of learning experience that sets the tone for parenting in the future. Um, one, it, it opens the door for naturopathic remedies and for recognizing the body's um, healing potential and the importance of rest and allowing the body to heal. And later on, when our children get sick, can we be applying these same principles with our children? Absolutely. Absolutely. Most children are basically healthy, you know, have a very strong immune system, which when faced with the challenge of, of an illness, a virus, a bacteria, sometimes a fungal infection, usually they can do exactly what the mother did during mastitis. If they rest, if they're given fluids, if they're made to feel comfortable and trusting, um, they will eventually, within a period of time, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer, have a fever. That fever stimulates the immune system, stimulates the white cells to, um, to fight the infection much more effectively. And the fever is basically self-regulating. If the child is comfortable drinking well, and doesn't have an overwhelming infection, the fever will never go that high, that high meaning over 106. It usually, most of the time, 95% of the time, it stays under 105. Some of those children with what, we, what many people call a high temperature tolerate it very well. You wouldn't think that they, they had fevers that were that high. And if you leave the fever to do what it needs to do, often the illness resolves much more quickly and efficiently than it does when one manipulates it. But you have to be present. You can't leave that child alone. Right. And you have to use good judgment that, that the child is present and drinking and able to rest through it. And we're talking, we're speaking tonight with Joanna Rossi. A pediatrician from Washington, D.C., and our phone line is 202-588-0893. And um, we're speaking about the health of children. And, Joanna, I wanted to speak with you a little bit further about this, the, this idea of how we treat the fever because, on the one hand, I, I sense that there is an understanding that there's great wisdom in our bodies and that this wisdom is something that's been... Uh, implanted in our bodies uh, over thousands and thousands of years. It's just our, our human physical um, condition and that our fevers are part of our body's response to infection. Um, but it's also a source of worry for parents. And what are the things that parents should be looking for? How can a parent be responsible if they're trying to allow the child to heal in a, heal in a natural way? Big question, Jack. One, um, I want to talk about one thing where one, one time when fever can be, must be taken very seriously, uh -huh. and that's in children under two months of age. Usually children under two months of age don't get sick, and they usually don't run a fever, and 
if they are ill in that period of time, they have a much higher likelihood of being overwhelmed by infection. And so infants under two months, even if they have just a little over 100, should be, the pediatrician should be talked to. Often the child needs to be seen, and it's treated very differently than later. So now I'm going to go into the later period. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit like you and me. I mean, if we're sick and we run a fever, we generally know, oh, I'm sick. I've got to get myself in bed under covers. I should tell somebody that I'm sick. I better have my water, maybe some fruit next to my bed, and I need somebody to look after me. Now, we have a voice, and we can talk to that other person and say, you know, I just need you to stick around, and I'm going to sleep and get up and so on. Children, until they can really speak well, they can't tell us, but they tell us with their actions. And most children who are, who are febrile and fighting something, intermittently they have moments where they are cheerful, where they smile, where they show happiness that they're being helped. Um, and so we know that their level of illness is not that deep. Sometimes they actually are running around with the fever. I mean, it varies. It varies tremendously. But usually you simply have windows where you can observe them and think, if I were acting that way, I would think that I was safe. When you don't get a window and children are consistently irritable, their muscles are jumpy, they don't connect with you, um, then that child needs to be seen. Or if they're in pain, in, in pain that is lasting pain, they need to be seen. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's very important that parents stay in contact with their physician, either by calls or bringing them in, because illnesses, especially the first illnesses, are real teaching moments where in the presence of the doctor, the doctor can explain we're looking for this or that and the, you know, each, so the parents leave that illness not more frightened, but more informed. It's interesting. It's, it's given me a clear sense of how a doctor isn't just treating specific conditions that children have and, you know, and healing them, but also guiding parents so that they can attend to their child and care for their child and recognize what are the conditions where the doctor needs to be called and what are the ones where we can trust our judgment to care for a child. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's wonderful. And when parents have a child with a fever and they want to do something at home in a natural way to, to, to help with the fever, what are the things that parents can do? The first thing is to drink, to have the child drink. And the child can drink anything. In prime, I mean, I think water is probably the best or a nursing child to nurse. And so for that, the mother has to drink a lot. Um, though fruit juices are not something that I think kids should drink a lot of in general, sometimes during illness it's a wonderful way to get some basic calories into them. So the, 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 the intake of fluids is key. The other thing, and it's a trick, um, a, a trick that comes from hydrotherapy, oftentimes at this period of the year when children run a fever, they are congested, okay? And they're uncomfortable in their congestion. And um, 
a method that one can use to get the congestion to leave the head where it's uncomfortable is something called a cold socks, warm socks technique. And you need a pair of light cotton socks, a bowl of cold water, and a, a pair of wool socks, and parents' arms. And so you, you, this child who is feverish, uh, you want to make sure that they're, before you do this, you want to make sure that the feet are warm. Sometimes you need to actually put the feet into hot water or you know warm water or put some wool socks on. But once the feet are warm and the child's warm all over, you take the thin cotton socks, you put them into cold water, you wring them out, you put them on the child's feet. And on top of those socks, you put the wool socks. And you let the child rest, not, not under many blankets, but you let them rest. The, very interestingly, the congestion will often just leave the head and come. The body wants to warm those feet. And so a lot of energy goes to the feet, and the congestion is actually able to drain from the head down. It's something that adults should do, can do as well, and parents can learn what it feels like and what, how it works by doing it themselves. Sometimes in a young child, you don't want, to, you don't want the sock to cover the entire foot. You just actually um, put the tip of the socks in cold water. But it's a technique that works. It's a simple technique that works quite nicely. The other thing is simply the everybody has heard of, you know, taking water and, you know, sponging the child down. It doesn't have to be done with cold water. You can just put some warm, even, water on the head and the neck, and then the body tries to evaporate that, and the temperature comes down just a little bit. And finally, for children who love to, some children love to be in, to be bathed when they have a fever. If you run a warm, comfortable bath, and put them in, and let them sit and play five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, the water temperature will end up lowering below their temperature, and they will usually their temperature can come down by half a degree, a degree, a degree and a half, and their achiness is relieved. And I remember my son one time, one, during one of his fevers, I had him do that, and all of a sudden he was yelling at me, Mom, Mom, tell your patients, tell your patients, this is the best thing. <laughs> this is, I feel so good, I feel so good. Everybody needs to do this when they have a fever. Anyway, so. That's wonderful. And I imagine that in the bath, a parent can see really how their children, how sick they are. Absolutely, because they usually love to bathe, they're happy, they begin to their temperature begins to drop a little bit. They start to play with their little boats and stuff, and you know nobody who's that sick can be always going to be fooling around with a little boat. Uh-huh. And yeah. if in a bath the child is uncharacteristically listless, it's a good sign for a parent that this is something where I should call the doctor. Yeah, or a time to take the baby out, take the child out, dress them up, and use an antipyretic, use Tylenol, and bring the temperature down, and then see how the child is. Because sometimes you need to bring the temperature down artificially in order to judge how sick the child is. It's wonderful. It's just wonderful to have choices as a parent. We're speaking with Dr. Joanna Razi, and we're on On Parenting. This is Jack Petrash, your host for On Parenting, and we're going to take a brief break, and we'll be back in a bit. 
From the Vault to the Classroom, the Pacifica Radio Archive's annual marathon broadcast fund drive launches the Campus Campaign, providing a new generation with a sound education. Hello, yes, this is Brother Cornell West. You donate, and we send a copy of one of our historic compilations to a school or college of your choice. I am here to do all that I can to support the campus campaign of my dear brothers and sisters at Pacifica. Students, teachers need to get in on this project and program. I'm doing all that I can. I'm behind it 120%. It is what we need in these times. From the vault to the classroom, the Pacifica Radio Archive's campus campaign launching on Tuesday, November 18th. WPFW will air this very special fundraising broadcast on Tuesday, November 18th, beginning at 9 a.m. and concluding at 1 a.m. on Wednesday morning. Good evening. Welcome back. (laughs) Good evening. Welcome back to On Parenting. And uh, that was Jimi Hendrix, but he is not on our show tonight. Uh, we're here with Dr. Joanna Razi, and uh, we're talking about the health of children. And um, Dr. Razi is a pediatrician in Washington, and uh, just a very special guest to have here tonight. Joanna, uh, one of the things I've been wondering about is how the world has changed for children. Uh, when I was a boy, we just were outside all the time. I walked to school, I came home from school, I was home five minutes, I changed my clothes, I ate something, and I went out. And uh, my parents would say, come home when the lights went on. And, uh, and I did, or I came home for dinner. And we just played, and we played actively. But today, children are much more sedentary. And uh, how does that affect their health? You know, Jack, I've been in practice now for 25 years, and that is the biggest change that I have seen. And that, that and the issue of diet are the biggest changes that I've seen. Um, children move so much less, but not only children move so much less, the adults also move so much less. And one of the things that we as are beginning to understand is that the less parents move, the less children move. Because children do not play in their neighborhoods the way they did when we were children. Um, a lot of neighborhoods aren't safe, and a lot of parents aren't home to kind of gently supervise from afar all the play that does take place. Now, you know, there's a lot we're learning about biology, and we are creatures who have evolved over, you know, hundreds of millions of years, and in nature, when people don't move, it means that there's danger either danger as in war or danger as in that it's cold and there's no food out there and you better hunker down and hibernate. The natural response to this lack of movement biologically is to reduce all of our metabolic function. Heart rate goes down, thyroid function goes down, digestion goes down, muscle tone goes down because there's no you want to conserve your energy in that situation as much as possible. Here we are today with plenty of food at all times, but our bodies by not moving and the children's bodies as well as the adult bodies by not moving sufficiently automatically are in a stress mode. And a lot of the 
Health problems, particularly the problems of weight in children, are not all related to the amount of food or calories that are being eaten, but to the lack of movement that reduces the metabolism. And so the, it's a little bit you know, complex as we begin to understand it. So one of the, there are different ways to set that straight. Mm -hmm. The first one is to have kids move. But to have kids move, the parents need to move. So whenever you have to, people, parents have to look at their lives and think, where can we, where can our children move? Where can we move? Can we walk to school? Can we walk to the market? Can on the weekends, can we take long walks with our kids? You know, what are our city parks? Where is it safe, beautiful, whatever? We might also sometimes just move in our house, play raucous games. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the house in the winter, there'd be times when that, that is something that can be done. Um, the food element is interesting in how it meshes because fresh food, as in, you know, small things, berries, fruits, nuts, seeds, tomatoes, little, little things that were, we were, we were gatherers. Mm -hmm. And we were also hunters and gatherers, but a lot of what we did was to walk for miles to gather tubers, berries, whatever, whatever was in season. And if we eat things that are fresh and colorful and in season, so right now if we eat apples and pears and sweet potatoes and pumpkins, red cabbage, white cabbage, our bodies biologically are getting live nutrients that tell us that the world is safe. And if the world is safe, we are not in that stress mode in our endocrine system that slows us down. If on the other hand, we eat bagels and cream cheese that have plenty of calories, but have none of the live nutrients, our body stays in the stress mode. It's very interesting. And so it's very interesting and we're beginning to understand it more and encourage that children eat five to ten servings of fresh fruits and vegetables a day as a way to make sure that metabolism keeps getting the right message. Yeah. That's important. Important and, and challenging because I, I know that in certain parts of our city it's very hard to get fresh produce. Uh, I know in parts of southeast Washington it's difficult often to, to find the supermarket that has the fresh produce and that the farmers markets aren't as prevalent a challenge for people in our city. Um, Joanna, I know that you also feel that um, you can tell when a mother comes in to see you with a young child whether she's been eating well or not. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of strange to be able to tell what people eat when they walk in the door, but there is a way of knowing it. Um, I mean, what I mean by well is this whole issue of fresh, of having sufficient fresh nutrients that are going to help the body be in this non-stressful internal situation. And in the fresh fruits and vegetables, there are there's a, something called the carotenoids that are very prevalent in carrots and sweet potatoes and colorful vegetables. And if you eat a fair amount of them, you have color always in your palms uh -huh. and there's a kind of a yellow hue in your palms you've got it and I've got it 
But when somebody's talking to me like this in my office and I see that they're white, that, that all I'm seeing there is white, or if I push my finger into them, you know, if I press on their hand, that all I see is white, I know that they are not really getting su the, the sufficient nutrients. And I can usually see it in their energy yeah. as well. Ioana, we are coming toward um, the latter part of our program, toward the end, and it's, oh, time has just gone too quickly here. But I wanted to not finish without having a chance to ask you about the way you raised your children, knowing what you know as a doctor, as a pediatrician, and then having the opportunity to raise your son and your daughter, what were the things that you wanted to bring into your parenting that were really of value and you know, that you wanted to make sure you didn't leave out? Well, first of all, Jack, I'm sure I left out a lot. <laughs> Let's, uh, and I'm sure I've made lots of mistakes. Um, I think, you know, at the very top of it, I would say that, you know, really instilling in them uh, that there is a God that yeah. our, you know, that, that, that was number one. Number two is definitely uh, trying to keep our family as joyful as possible, trying to do things um, with my children that I like to do, or to make sure that as a family we did things that, our, that we as parents love to do to instill, you know, passion in the children. For me, I have a great love of nature. I always have. And early on in my parenting, I learned, I was told a story that the American Indians considered that the biggest rule in child raising was not to disturb children who were in nature. And that the reason for this was that the children needed to develop a relationship with Mother Earth in order to feel safe as human beings on this earth because Mother Earth would always be there. So we spent a lot of time in nature. We went for walks, daily walks, from the time they were little, one walk, two walks, three walks, just in our neighborhood, usually. And then on weekends, we would take advantage of our beautiful city, walks along the Potomac. Great Falls was for us a great favorite, yeah. but so was the Arboretum, so was Wheaton National Park, different places. And then when it was possible to leave town, one of the places nearby here that we went to was a place called Flag Pond, which I would recommend to anybody. It's near Solomon's Island. Um, because it was quite, so those are the things. And one of the, one child said to me, are God and Mother Nature married or are they just good friends? <laughs> and so kids really, really enjoy their time out there in nature. Yeah, wonderful. And all that's being said today about children and this na nature deficit that children uh, have in their lives and uh, just an important thing for children to be out in nature important for them to be eating well but important for them to be in the care the present care of parents who love them and attend to them absolutely absolutely well Joanna, i want to thank you so much for being our guest tonight uh Razi, um just a pleasure to have you here and to hear the many things that you have um, to offer the parents who bring their children to you uh, I know they just must be so pleased. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're welcome.
It's wonderful to hear Bobby McFerrin, and uh, that's our signal that it's now story time. And tonight's story, it's going to be a Native American story, and uh, it's going to be a Thanksgiving story about a week early here before Thanksgiving. Um, but when we sit down to our meals um, in about nine or ten days, we're all going to, I'm sure we're going to find corn in some form on the table. And this is the story of the first corn. There was once in the land of Indians the warrior Hiawatha. And in all the tribe, there was no one able to run as fast, shoot as far, build such a strong canoe as Hiawatha. The beasts of the fathers, he can, the forest, he considered his little brothers. He could tell how the beavers built their lodges. He learned the swiftness of the deers from the way they ran and how the squirrels hid their acorns. Yet Hiawatha, as accomplished as he was, was always interested most of all in the well-being of his tribe. And it was with this in mind that he took himself out of his village and into the deep woods where he began to fast. He was going to fast for seven days. And during those days, he wanted to prove himself worthy to the Great Spirit so that the Great Spirit would send down a gift, a rare gift for his people. So he wandered into the woods. And as he fasted and grew weaker and more quiet, he made his way into the great meadow that adjoined the woods. And there he saw the gooseberries and the blueberries and the wild rice. And while he looked at these, he knew that when the winter came, the snow would cover this meadow with a thick blanket and the wild rice and the berries would be gone. And then he wandered into the woods and he looked upon all the creatures, the shy creatures who lived there, the deer that jumped from the thicket, the rabbit in its burrow, the squirrel with its rattling horde of acorns and the pigeons building their nests in the trees and the wild geese flocking northward. But Hiawatha knew that when the winter winds blew, the geese would be gone. The rabbits would be underground in their warren. The deer would be scarce and the squirrels with their horde of acorns frozen underground, would be in hiding. And then Hiawatha made his way to the river, and there he saw the sturgeon leap, scattering drops of water like beads of wampum upon the surface of the water. And he saw the yellow perch darting here and there like sunbeams. And he saw the herring and the crawfish. But he knew that when the winter came, there would be a thick layer of ice upon the water and it would yield no food to the tribe. And so he knew that the gift he needed was a new gift, one which had not yet been bestowed upon his people. And so he fasted. And as he lay in his wigwam upon a bed of leaves and branches, exhausted and weary, because he'd eaten no food. He still prayed to the Great Spirit 
to send a gift to the Indians. And one evening, while he sat by the door of the wigwam and looked toward the river, in the haze that rose from the river and seemed to glow purple in the evening dusk, he saw a figure coming toward him. It was an Indian brave, dressed in garments of green and yellow, uncharacteristic clothes for an Indian, and his hair uncharacteristically was soft and golden, and there were nodding green plumes upon his head and a green feather from his band, and he seemed to be walking straight from the sunset right up the rise to the wigwam of Hiawatha. And Hiawatha pulled himself to his knees and looked upon the stranger, and the stranger spoke, and he said, Hiawatha, your prayers have been heard in heaven. You have not asked for greater skill in hunting. You've not asked for greater craft in fishing, nor for triumph in battle. You have only asked for the good of your tribe. I am Mondamin. Rise up. Wrestle me. Come, Hiawatha. And so Hiawatha stood, and he and Mondamin wrestled. And they wrestled in a great struggle right in that space in front of the wigwam. And as Hiawatha wrestled, the strength came back to him. He took Mondamin by the shoulders and held him fast. And try as he might, Mondamin was not able to knock Hiawatha from his feet. And when the sun had set and darkness had come around them, Mondamin said, Hiawatha, you wrestle well. I, your friend Mondamin, will return tomorrow. And so it was that Mondamin returned the next night, and Hiawatha rose to wrestle him. And they wrestled in the dusk, and not again was Mondamin able to bring Hiawatha to his knee. Mondamin came each night for six nights in a row. And on the sixth night, when they wrestled, Mondamin said to Hiawatha, I will come again tomorrow, but when I wrestle you tomorrow, you will win. And when you win, I will perish. You must lay me in a bed and cover that bed with the earth, but see that no weed or worm or bird disturbs my sleep. Lay me in a place where the rain will fall on me and the sun will shine on me. And then, my friend, you may see me again. And so the next night, Mondamin came again and he wrestled with Hiawatha. And they wrestled as they had not in days past. So strenuously were they engaged. And Hiawatha struggled valiantly with his friend Mondamin. And Mondamin did the same in return. And when the sun set and darkness fell, only one brave stood alone 
and it was Hiawatha, and lying at his feet was Mondamin. And when Hiawatha looked down and saw his friend lying on the ground, his heart was filled with sadness. He kneeled beside his friend, remembering the words, and began to dig in the earth. He dug a bed, and he put Mondamin in that bed, lying on his back, and he took from him the garments of gold and green, and then covered him carefully with the earth. And each day Hiawatha would sit by the side of that bed where Mondamin lay, and he would chase away the birds that came, the crows, the small sparrows, and each day he would tend the soil, pulling up the weeds. And each day he would remove the worms. And he would watch the rain fall. And he would watch the sunshine. So faithfully did Hiawatha stay by the side of his friend Mondamin. And then one day, early in the morning, as he rose, he saw a green shoot coming from the earth like a feather pushing its way through the soil. And he knew that his friend Mondamin was coming again. And each day Hiawatha would come to the side of the bed and he'd see that sprout grow. And by summer, that sprout had become a strong corn plant in green and gold with golden tassels hanging down. And that was when Hiawatha knew my friend Mondamin stands here now. And when the summer ended and fall came, Hiawatha harvested the corn from its husks and he called for his village to come for a great feast for they had now been given the gift of corn. And so it was that corn came to the Indian people and, and so it was as well that Corn was on the first Thanksgiving table, and so will it be. And uh, just a wonderful story, and we can be thankful for the traditions of the Native people who were part of our first Thanksgiving. Now, we're coming to the end of our show, and I want to thank you all for being with us tonight. Uh, we've had a wonderful time to speak with Joanna Razi and to remember some of the important things that she said. Uh, how she talked about that the important relationship that is established between a pediatrician and a family before the birth of their child, a relationship where the parents choose the doctor that will guide them through this important time. And she spoke about that important period at the birth of a child when the care needs to be given to the mother so that she can give her care to the child the care that can be provided by the community, by relatives, by the baby's father, by grandparents, the important care that gives a mother the space and time to acclimate to this new work. And then she spoke about the, the challenges and opportunities of raising a child and how those challenges, like the difficulties with nursing, can lead to understandings that can just set the tone for our parenting for years to come and how we can 
under, through understanding the body's inherent wisdom and natural ways of healing aid our children and raise them in a way that allows them to be healthy and strong, to allow them to move, to be outdoors, to play in the daytime so that they know that they sleep at night, to eat good food, to eat fresh food, and to spend time in nature. So just wonderful thoughts. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I want to thank our engineer, T, our guest, Joanna Razi, and all of you, our listeners. And I want to invite you to stay tuned for Monday Night Jazz with Rusty Hassan. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. Thank you for listening to another edition of On Parenting. They have their own thoughts. They have their own thoughts. You can house their bodies, but not their souls. For their souls dwell in a place of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You can strive to be like them, but you cannot make them just like you. Strive to be like them, but you cannot make them just like you. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you.